Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Galatians 5, 7-15, Galatas 5, del 7 al 15. Ustedes estaban corriendo bien. ¿Quién los estorbó para que dejaran de obedecer a la verdad? Tal instigación no puede venir de Dios, que es quien los ha llamado. Un poco de levadura fermenta toda la masa. Yo por mi parte confío en el Señor, que ustedes no pensarán de otra manera. El que los está perturbando será castigado, sea quien sea. Hermanos, si es verdad que yo todavía predico la circuncisión, ¿por qué se me sigue persiguiendo? Si tal fuera mi predicación, la cruz no ofendería tanto. Ojalá que esos instigadores acabaran por mutilarse del todo. Les hablo así, hermanos, porque ustedes han sido llamados a ser libres, pero no se valgan de esa libertad para dar rienda suelta a sus pasiones. Más bien, sírvanse unos a otros con amor en efecto, toda la ley se resume en un solo mandamiento, ama a tu prójimo como a ti mismo, pero si siguen mordiéndose y devorándose, tengan cuidado, no sea que acaben por destruirse unos a otros. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in uh, one of the greatest movies of all time that has ever been uh, created, in The Princess Bride, if you know that movie, uh, Aningo Matoya, he is criticizing another character named Vincini, uh, who keeps on using the word inconceivable. If you remember the scene, uh, Matoya says to him, as Vincini is constantly using the word, he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Now, as I think about that line, there's probably a lot of different words that we could uh, consider uh, the common definition and uh, assume that there's probably some uncertainty about what people mean. But I think that critique about words that I do not think you use it all the time, but I don't think you know what it actually means. The word that tends to jump out at me in recent days is the word freedom. Uh, in a nation with a stated core value of freedom, in a culture that is ever focused on freedom of expression and freedom of choice, I cannot help but think too often, you keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And what is freedom? How can we best understand freedom? That's what I want to take a look at today. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we have been in the middle of a series called The Fruit. Uh, all summer, we've been walking through the we will be walking through the fifth chapter of Galatians to consider what it means to grow in Christian character. Now, last week, we began the series by trying to understand uh, the fundamental basis for growing in Christian character is simply one thing, that if we're going to grow, we must be rooted in Jesus, and we considered what that means. Uh, we considered that growth really uh, comes as a result of being set free by his grace, uh, the grace that is unmerited and love-saturated. But of course, as we talk about freedom and being set free by Jesus, the question, it does beg the question, what is freedom? And today I want to consider what the Bible has to say about freedom. And to understand what the Bible has to say about freedom, I want to consider a couple things. Number one, I want to consider what freedom is not. 
from the biblical perspective, what freedom is, and then finally, what freedom produces. Okay? So first, let's take a look at what freedom is not. Uh, look at verse 7 of our passage. Uh, you can get a, get a sense of uh, how we're going to approach this. So in verse 7, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Now, what is, what is he talking about there? Well, if you remember, last week, Paul is uh, writing to uh, the churches in Galatia. He is reminding them uh, of the justification that comes not through their adherence to the old laws and customs, but rather there's a justification that comes only through, the, uh, through grace, uh, through faith, by faith in Jesus. But if you remember, Paul is writing to Christians who in a lot of ways had reverted back into what he described as bondage. Uh, if you remember back in verse 4 of Galatians 5, uh, he talks about how they had fallen away from grace because they were again prioritizing the law for their justification. And now, here in verse 7, you can hear his exasperation. And then Paul is he's essentially saying, like, you were doing so well. You were running so well. Who messed this up for you? And then you can continue to hear some of his frustration. If you uh, look at verse 12, he makes a really striking statement. And I, I know Anna just read it uh, in Spanish, and so if you don't speak Spanish, it might not have completely hit you. You might have missed the impact of it. But Paul says this. Uh, Paul says about those who are undermining his message of grace, he says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Other Bible translations say that I wish they would castrate themselves. What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you remember, again, Paul is speaking of uh, a sp the spiritual nature of what it means to trust in Jesus by faith. And now what's interesting is, as some read this, they get really uncomfortable with that statement that Paul's calling for the castration of these people. Uh, and so because people feel really uncomfortable with it, some have interpret that, interpreted that as Paul simply saying, well, he just wishes that they would be cut off from the church. However, I don't think that perspective takes seriously what Paul is actually saying. And so, because at Redeemer East Harlem, we don't shy away from really difficult topics, let's understand why Paul is calling these people to castrate themselves. I mean, as you, if you remember, as we've seen, circumcision is at the front and center uh, of the controversy in Galatia. So there are those that believe in order for one to be a true Christian, you needed to be circumcised. And Paul has been arguing that circumcision has lost all of its religious value. It's not required by anyone for anything spiritual. Yet there were those in Galatia who were insisting that it was necessary to be a true Christian. And so one biblical commentator, as he's considering this and considering the context of uh, the, the pagan area of Galatia, he's noting that it's really just started to resemble this obsession with circumcision at this point. is starting to resemble more of the mutilation practices of the pagan uh, priests in Galatia. Right? They were doing these kinds of uh, these practices as a means of getting God's attention in these pagan temples. And so as a result, since the agitators have come in and they've in some ways adopted this obsession with, uh, with uh, circumcision for spiritual means, that same commentator says that believing that this physical mutilation is of spiritual value is really summarized this way. This is how the, commentator, the biblical commentator puts it. He said, 
Paul is, in essence, saying, let them be consistent and cut away more radically. Let them go all the way and castrate themselves, thus making eunuchs of themselves, like the priests of Sibeli in the, uh, in the wild temples. I mean, in other words, what he's saying is, if you think circumcision is spiritually valuable, then just mutilate yourself completely. I mean, he's using this extreme language to show just how inconsistent it is to, to think that anything that one can do will justify themselves before the Lord. I mean, he's using this language to, um, to drive home his point. If you're going to do that, you might as well go all the way down. So, now with that in mind, I actually think that idea helps us understand a little bit of what freedom is not based on Paul's thinking. I think Paul gives us some insight into uh, how we often assume freedom ought to be. Specifically, we often understand freedom to be this uninhibited pursuit of whatever we think is best for us. Right? This, this no boundaries, going all the way, going extreme to what it is that I think is best for me. That no one else gets to tell me uh, what is right or wrong. I decide that kind of thing. And that's really the foundation of Paul's argument here. These agitators are trying to convince people that their salvation, their justification, their acceptance is somehow like in their hands. It's something that they can do. And if they just go, uh, if they just pursue what they think is best, they will then find this freedom. And it doesn't matter what anyone else has said, including God. Instead, freedom becomes this self-defining venture. But here's the problem with the self-definitions of freedom. Because we, we fall into this same kind of pattern of assuming that freedom means that I am going to determine that which is best for me, uninhibited by anyone else's assumptions of what is best. Too often, when we have that kind of definition for freedom, we often short-circuit our own definition of freedom by inherently being contradictions within ourselves. Meaning, we actually cannot keep up with our own definition of freedom often. Because we often want things that at the same time, we are, that are at the, um, diametrically opposed to one another. Let me just give you an example of what I mean. So there would be some who would say, freedom is a self-definition. It's not something that can be imposed on me, but rather I should be free. And so some might say, you know, I want success in my career. I want to make it to the top and nothing is going to stop me. So there's one part of some who would say that, but then there's another part of us that would also say, but I also want a family who loves me and doesn't resent me for working so much. Right? We have these two diametrically opposed issues within us. Or some might say, I want no limits to my sexual prowess or appetite or desires. But at the same time, I also want to be loved and known and to experience intimacy. Those things end up diametrically opposed, and yet for many, they're both desires. I want to be fit and I want to be healthy, but I also want to eat cake and fry everything. Diametrically opposed, and yet still desires. I don't want to be accountable or have to submit to anyone, but I want law and order and a government that enforces law. Well, take your pick. Which is it? I mean, if we're honest, freedom can't be rooted in my self-definition. We are too complex. We want too many things. We have too many desires. And even within ourselves, 
we will conflict with our own definitions. Not to mention that that complexity exists in every single person. This means that your self-definition of freedom will inevitably come into conflict with someone else's self-definition of freedom. And when competing definitions come into conflict, you cannot say to the other person that their definition is wrong. Because to do so then fundamentally undermines the foundations of your own self-definition. And more to Paul's point about castration and the idea that you might as well just push, push to the ultimate extremes if freedom is to be understood as a, self, uh, uh, a venture of self-definition, we must then accept every conception that we as humans can come up with about what freedom ought to be. And the problem with that is going to be people have really problematic understandings of what freedom is. And if freedom is a self-definition thing, you can't ever say that their definitions are wrong. At minimum, you can attempt to combat them to decide whose is better and whose is worse, but there will be times when those who have an extraordinarily problematic understanding of freedom will win the day. And over the course of history, there have been terrible injustices and atrocities that have occurred as a result of people's self-defined freedom. Now, of course, there might be some who would say, well, I think freedom should be a self-definition venture as long as I don't harm anyone. Okay. The only problem that I have with that perspective, which is extraordinarily prevalent today, is that, one, it's still insisting that others define freedom the way that you do. Right? So that's a very specific definition of freedom, which again, if you do that, then you're undermining your own argument. But the other thing is the only way that one can have freedom without impacting other people is if you live in a vacuum. It's the only way to do it is if you disconnect yourself completely. If you truly want self-definition as freedom without consequences on others, you must be completely isolated from society. It's the only way that it's going to work because at some point, your definition will be rejected by others and inevitably, someone else will either be forced to submit to your definition or you will force them to submit to yours. And in the end, that just becomes another opportunity to undermine the very premise of self-definition. So if that's true, right, if freedom is not self-definition, uninhibited, then what is it? Let's consider that. Here's what I want to put in front of you that we're going to spend a few minutes talking about. True freedom, I believe, and I uh, will show from what I believe um, God revealed to us in Scripture, is that true freedom is to exist fully in the way that you were designed to exist. True freedom is deeply tied to purpose. True freedom is fulfilling your purpose and existing within the boundaries of that purpose. What do I mean? Think about it. Just give me a dumb example of this. Um, how is a hammer most free? This was, this is, I'm sitting at my desk this week, and for whatever reason, I had a hammer in my mind. We'll call it the Lord's, the Lord's leading. But let's think about a hammer. When is a hammer most free? Well, in order to understand how a hammer is free, you need to understand its purpose, right? If the hammer 
Self defines itself as free as being a, a screwdriver. In his self-definition, this is what the hammer decides to be. I wants to be a screwdriver. Though it is free to define itself that way, the hammer would never find true freedom. Why? Because it's never experienced its created purpose. It will always be frustrated until it understands its design, its purpose. You know, another example that I've heard uh, would be the example of a fish. When is a fish most free? Well, the fish might say that their self-definition of freedom is walking on the shore, and no one can tell me otherwise. But we know that a fish will do nothing but flap around and suffocate to death on the shore. The fish is most free when it's in the place where it was designed to be, in the water. In fact, it has extraordinary freedom if it is willing to submit to its purpose and its design, a purpose that comes with boundaries and with expectations. And this, of course, for many, is complete, a completely counterintuitive idea. The idea that freedom requires boundaries. I mean, how does that work exactly? Well, years ago, I remember uh, hearing a pastor give a, a really great example of proficient musicians, which we've gotten to hear some of them today. Right? The best pianists, the best guitar players, the best drummers, they have freedom on their instruments, when they have complete freedom on their instruments, there's really nothing else like it. It's amazing to watch them use their instruments unencumbered, completely free. But what makes them, as musicians, proficient? Proficient enough to be free? Well, for some, it's certainly recognizing first that they were built for music, that in some way it's, they have this ability and this talent. But... When, you, when they begin to realize that, there then comes years of discipline, of hard work, of striving, of understanding that they need to set their life up in particular kinds of ways so that they can practice and grow. I mean, setting boundaries to have countless hours of practice, that's what makes them proficient. They understand that limitations actually produce freedom to live their purpose, which is music. You can't have freedom without understanding purpose and without understanding boundaries. Freedom, then, is realizing our purpose and then living within the scope of that purpose. Freedom is not some self-defining venture, but rather it's a purpose-driven, purpose-discovering venture. And so if, with that in mind, if God is God, if he is the creator of all things, if he is the intelligence behind the universe, then that means that he has created us with purpose. I mean, when speaking of creation, uh, the Apostle Paul, in this moment of praise in uh, uh, Romans 11, he says that for him and through him and for him all things are made. Right? That is that God... Everything is from God. It is through God. It is for God. This means that freedom, this is where this all comes together now, freedom is only possible when we recognize that our existence is from him, through him, and for him. That's freedom. Now, there's a couple of people I maybe have in mind as I say some of that. There may be those who would say, well, you know, I don't believe in the concept of God. 
uh, and this whole thing then I would assume sounds pretty meaningless to you. A preacher talking about our purpose being God, for God, through God. What if you reject the whole idea? Well, I would say this. That doesn't mean that that's still not your purpose. You could very well reject the concept of God. That's okay. But to understand if it is true that he is the creator of all things, your rejection of him doesn't change anything about the fundamental premise, about what true freedom is. A fish's purpose to exist in water is not less true just because the fish decides to deny the existence of water. And forgive me if that comes off condescending, but if it is true that God is God, then that then means our greatest freedom is going to be understanding what we were designed for, what our purpose is, and what the boundaries are that he gives to us so that we might flourish as his creation, purposed creation. There also might be some, maybe you do believe in God, but you've never really taken seriously that true freedom requires us to see God as the definer of all purpose, not as some self-defined venture. And maybe for you, it's going to take taking a moment to consider, okay, I believe that God is up there, but I've never really thought much about the fact that I was created for him. What does that mean, to be created for him? Either way, Paul's entire argument is that freedom cannot be, fi- cannot be found in some self-defined justification, but rather pursuits uh, in our life are only, they only make sense. Our lives really only fully and completely make sense when we understand that we have been created and created with a purpose. But what then, then does that mean for us? Right? That, that means that freedom is when we do that which God created us to do. And there's a lot of different ways to understand what God has created to do, created us to do. But I want to give you one perspective Right? One kind of easy way in to try to understand why we're, why we're created and probably one of the most helpful and most concise uh, ways to understand what God's created us to do is just to consider what God commands of us. Right? If God is creator, he's not going to command us to do something that misaligns with what he intends. And Jesus, in Matthew 22, when asked about God's commandments, gives us two commands that are really the framing of all other commands. These two commands, I think, reflect best and most concisely what you and I were created for. Matthew 22, Jesus says this. He summarizes all the law in this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the greatest commands. Those are what God calls us to be. In a lot of ways, that's your purpose. To love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor. That's freedom. I mean, have you ever thought about it in that way? That is true freedom, if that is what God has designed us, created us to be. So, but if that's true, we got to push this one step further. If that is really freedom, what then should it produce in us? And how exactly is that kind of freedom even possible? Let's consider that, what freedom produces. 
Uh, when I conceived of the, the title of this sermon, I entitled it The Freedom to Serve. And one of the things that kind of struck me is just kind of the, the contradictory nature of that. You know, how is service to someone freedom? Again, that doesn't compute when we understand freedom is to be this, this kind of free from obligation kind of thing. But freedom is not that freedom from obligation, but rather, as we've said, it's, it's embracing the right obligations. So when we say that we are truly free, we are truly free when we do that which God created us to do, which is to love him and to love others. Look at uh, verse 13 uh, through 15. I find this interesting that Paul actually in this passage uh, draws on the same words as Jesus, where he says that freedom ultimately leads us up to loving our neighbor. Why is that? Well, if, um, as we've uh, already stated, too often, our definition of freedom is self-oriented. It's this, we have this natural bend toward ourselves, this natural bent toward our own heart. Uh, Martin, Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he spoke of our heart being curved in on itself, that we are naturally bent towards serving ourselves and our own self-interests, which is why even when we talk about freedom, so often freedom is about myself so often about serving myself and my own desires and my own needs. But when we are actually free, we're no longer bent inward, but now we're bent outward into service for God and to service for others. So much of the modern notion is inward, self-oriented, but the work of Jesus breaks us free from that bondage of self-orientation so that now we are free to serve. That's what freedom produces. And the more and more we are set free, the more and more we're going to see that happen in our lives. More and more where we're desiring to serve the Lord, desiring to serve people. That is a proof of freedom that we're experiencing. But that freedom, it's not natural to us. And it required something significant to pull us out of that self-orientation. I mean, Jesus Christ, and this is part of what Paul is getting at all throughout the book of Galatians, but Jesus Christ, he's the one who truly sets us free from these attempts at self-justification, this self-obsession that we so often naturally have. Jesus Christ, he's the embodiment. This has been, as I've been sitting with us this week, it's, the, um, it's been striking me so significantly. Jesus actually is the embodiment of what we often think about with freedom, meaning that Jesus is actually the only one who is truly free from any sense of obligation to anyone. Right? He himself is the ultimate of all things. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one greater. Yet Jesus, he uses that freedom, that power, not for himself. But instead, how does he use his freedom? Well, he uses his freedom to glorify the Father. John 17 after describing the power and authority that's been given to him, Jesus says, Father, I, uh, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Jesus, with his freedom, glorifies the Father. But then in Mark 10, Jesus says that he did not come to be served, but to serve. Philippians 2 says that Jesus did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, which in John 15 means that he laid down his life. Jesus used his freedom to fulfill the two great commandments 
to glorify God, to love God, and to serve others. He's the embodiment of true freedom. He lived a sinless life for us. He died a sufficient death for us. He rose again from the dead for us. All of this was done for the glory of God and for the good of those he loves. That is the fullness of freedom. We see it in Jesus. And you and I, we are truly free when we live as we were designed to live, which is to also do the same, is to live our lives in service to God and in service to others. That's freedom. And we know that we are free when we can look upon Jesus and we see how he used his freedom for our good and we allow that to form us and shape us and transform us so profoundly that out of love and affection for the example that our Savior has set, we then go and do the same. To love God with all that we are. To love others in ways that we can. Philippians 2 Speaking of that, we do not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above ourselves. And we can live that kind of life. We know that the work of Jesus, the work of his spirit is happening in us. And that's freedom, true freedom. And so let me close with this. Be practical. Try to be as practical as I can with this. There are some... Uh, who have this conception of freedom that insists that the best way uh, to be free is to love ourselves. And uh, others, um, it's to insist that that self-definition is truly freedom. But I want to encourage you to consider this. I want you to know, if if that has been your leaning, that self-definition is truly freedom, I want us to know that freedom that is not rooted in God's freedom which is the freedom I just described, is a false freedom. It's actually bondage. You cannot love yourself and serve others rightly. You cannot love yourself to that kind of degree where everything must be self-defined. But rather, when we begin to be free, we begin to see that God is pushing us to love other people and to love him fully. And so I do wonder, just as we consider this kind of idea, to what extent... Do we find ourselves desiring to love others? Is it there? Or are we always so focused on loving ourselves? You know, it's interesting is the opposite can be true too. The other side of the spectrum of this can be true. There are those. I can admit I've been this person at times, and I can admit that I know people like this. But there are those who really do seemingly have this whole life commitment to God uh, by you know, seeking knowledge of God and the things of God and trying to be moral and righteous in their living, and yet they're unloving, that they don't love others well. But because they've committed so much to trying to love God rightly, they assume that, you know, their, you know, their lack of empathy or the lack of compassion or kindness or grace is in some way warranted. And it's very much what Paul is describing in verse 15 where he talks about how don't bite and devour each other. They have that kind of posture. But I would also encourage you with this, that for some, we love God so much that we forget that he also calls us in that love to then go love others well. Wherever we are on some of this spectrum, I'd encourage us all to look upon Jesus, the one who has glorified God, loved him fully, who has loved others by serving us. That's freedom. And let that shape us so deeply that we then go 
and we represent him in the world doing the same, loving God, loving others, experiencing that kind of freedom, a freedom to serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the goodness of your grace. It is a grace that provides us something that we, in and of ourselves, would not be able to achieve, which is the ability to no longer see ourselves in the ways that we have before, to no longer see ourselves as the center of all things, and to no longer prioritize ourselves in ways that are uh, harmful and even destructive. But rather, God, you give us a freedom that allows us to obey your commands, which are to love you and to love others. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, all of us, to sit with and assess the ways in which we have not done one of those or both of those rightly. And God, I pray that we would not look at pursuing that obedience as some way of justification, but rather we would see it as an opportunity to respond to what Jesus has done for us. That he has loved you well. That he has served us well. That we are benefactors of what he's accomplished. And as we think about that good gift, would it then mold us and shape us and transform us by the work of your spirit to more and more reflect Jesus in this way. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.